Amen. You can be seated. I just want to reiterate again, happy Father's Day. Um, being a father is one of these, um, is really truly a delight. Like Father's Day, I've been a father now for three years, my, my, and, uh, or a little more, actually. And, uh, and so um, being a father to me is, like Father's Day is a delight. Like it's, it's really awesome to be a father. And I really love the responsibility of being a father. I love trying to raise my children and, and try to nurture them and grow them up and see them succeed in life. And, and I'm always trying to, I take my role seriously. I'm trying to always learn how do I be a good father, right? How do I, um, what are some books out there maybe I can read that would help me be a father? And I found one. One's a secular book. And it was all about how do you pass your values on to your children? Like, can I, can I raise my children in such a way where maybe they become a Christian in their later days? Because I know families that have done it. I know families that everybody has been a Christian. And so I, I know that there's no guarantee that I can, but I want to try. And, uh, and so this book, I think it was called How to Pass Your Values on to Your Children. And uh, one of the things it said in that book that struck me was that fathers are a really big deal. If not one of the, they're, they're probably one of the biggest influences in a child's life across their lifespan is the father. That you're going to have a, a greater influence than maybe anybody as dad for good or for bad. And so it just made it weighty for me. It was just kind of a, whoa, you know, my role is a big deal. And then I went on in the book, and one of the big things it said, that how, do you, how do you pass your values on to your children is you embody what you say you believe. It's pretty simple. It's like, okay, so if I want my children to have a relationship with the Lord, submitted to the King of Kings, then I have to have a relationship with the Lord, submitted to the King of Kings. And so with that in mind, I want to look to our passage today, and we're going to talk about the King of Kings. This passage is going to introduce us to him. And so let's, let's look at the passage. If you have your Bibles, it's 2 Samuel 7. You can flip there. It'll be on the screen. And it starts like this. Now, then the king, now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that, you, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel with whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel, and I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, 
who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, that is, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this is a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought all this You've brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your, driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you establish for yourself your people Israel, to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house. And do as you have spoken, and your name will be magnified forever, saying, the Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue before, forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall your house of your servant be blessed forever. That's a long passage, but it's a really good passage. This passage is actually one of the, the big turning points in Scripture. You have Abraham and a covenant with Abraham, and, and now we see a covenant with David. And so it's a, this, is the, this is the covenant unfolding. And so the passage starts out, now when the king. Those are the first few words. And, you know, I really wanted to say, hey, help us understand, what, what is a king? What is a king? And I want to challenge you a little bit to put yourself, not in our day and age, but put yourself back in David's day and age of kingship. What it meant to be a king. See, David was a king, and he had a kingdom, right? A jurisdiction over which he had supreme power in the kingdom. Nobody rivaled David. He was sovereign. He had control. Like I said, he had power. And he uses his power and his authority and his wisdom to govern the people. And if people want to live with peace, live in peace in David's kingdom, then they would have to submit to the king, Right? They cannot be rebelling against the king because David as king would come in and stop the rebellion. They would have to live in submission to him. And if you had a problem in a, in a kingdom, you would petition the king to please hear your case. And if the, case, if the king decided to hear your case and you came before the king, what the king decided in your case was final. There was no authority that you could appeal to above the king. 
That's the relationship you have with a king. You submit to the king. The king does not conform to you. They don't meet you halfway. Kings have the power and authority to say, thus says the king. And that's what it means to be king. And so in, the, in our Bibles, we see a history of, of kings, like this idea of what it means to be king is unfolding. And, and one of the places it kind of starts is Exodus 1.8. It says, now then there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And we know that this new king enslaved God's people, right, was not good to God's people. And one of the big things that God does is he delivers his people out from under this king, and he brings them out to the wilderness. And, and Deuteronomy 35 says, a 33, 5 says, Thus the Lord became king in Jeshurun when the heads of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together. See, God didn't bring his people out from under a king to not have a king. He brought his people out from under a king so that he would be king, so that he would rule. And we see in Samuel, as so we've been going through Samuel, we've already talked about it a few weeks ago, but when the people come to Samuel, they say, Samuel, we want a king over us. We want a king like all the rest of these nations around us. And, and Samuel is sad, and the Lord says to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they've not rejected you. They have rejected me from being king over them. So we see time and time in Scripture that Israel kind of rejects God as king. The commands of God. I wouldn't say there as much about how you earn righteousness before God, but, but it's how do you live before the king. When God gave the commandments to Israel, this was like, this is how you live before me. I'm the king. Live before me. Obey me. And we see that Israel continually, they didn't like God being king. They didn't like his commandments. They didn't obey him. And so Saul became king, right? And then David became king. And, and David was a little different. He was a wise king, a good king, a king after God's own heart. And it said that David had great success. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, what he did was he looked at the tabernacle. We see, this is where we find David. We find him just pausing and, and just considering and looking at the tabernacle. And he looks over at his house. He says, you know, I live in a really nice house. Like it is great. This is a house of cedar. And I look at the tabernacle I think, you know, the tabernacle is kind of a shabby tent compared to where I live. And there's something about that that's just not right. So David wants to build God a house with a little bit more renown. You know, and we would probably be thinking, yeah, that, that sounds about right. You know, we, it, there's probably nothing wrong with that. And, and on face value, right, Nathan doesn't see a problem. Nobody sees a problem with it. It's basically, go ahead, David, do it. That sounds good. And as readers of this passage, we should probably be a little bit surprised when God says otherwise. So we're going to learn something about God and his character. And God's response to David about building the temple is essentially, no, David, you're not going to build the temple. No, stop. See, David is king, but God is the king of kings. And when it comes to worship, God is the one who's going to decide who builds the temple when the temple will be built, where it will be built. He, he decides everything about the temple. And he tells David essentially, no, you're not the man. And I can imagine that David probably felt a little bit of, uh, at that point when he heard no. Because he's like, hey, I really wanted to do this. I really wanted to build this temple. 
Whenever I get my eyes set on something, I want to do it, right? And somebody says no, there's a little bit of, mm, and I just imagine if David's anything like me, there's nothing in the passage that points to David going, mm, at God. There's nothing in there. But I can just picture my own heart. Say, oh, I don't like being told no. It's because I don't like really authority over my life. I don't like when people give me orders or have the power to give me orders or think they have the power to give me orders. And so how do you handle authority? You know, do you handle it like me? Yeah, I, how do you handle when somebody tells you no or tells you what to do? And it really depends on do we trust that authority or not, right? Because if we trust those are over us for our good, like I've got some people, they can tell me no, and I just kind of know like they're out for my good. And when they tell me no, I might say, okay, I'm thinking wrong. My wife is one of them, okay? I, uh, she might say no, and I'm like, okay, I need to pause here for a second. There's probably something I'm not seeing. But sometimes the latter two is that we don't trust authority. Sometimes we think authority is not out for my good. You know what we do is we say, well, I'm going to have it my way because I'm going to pursue my good. I'm going to do as I please. And if we're honest, we're probably all in here more like the latter. We all want our way. And also, too, I think that because we're just Americans, right? Americans, we're, we're kind of ingrained to be skeptical of kings and authority. Right, you just think of the Boston Tea Party, right? This king saying, hey, we're going to tax all this tea coming out of America. And these guys are on these ships just tossing tea in the harbor saying, no, man, this taxation without representation. If we don't have a say, we're dumping this stuff overboard. You have the Bill of Rights where we say, hey, every, every person has these rights. And the leadership of the country cannot transgress these rights. We have a constitution with a balance of powers, so no one person has too much power. And we do all that basically to prevent one man from being king. We're skeptical of authority. And the president today, as powerful as he is, he cannot come in here and individually tell you what to do. He cannot do it. He doesn't have that kind of power. And I also think, you know, one of the funny things I think, and, you know, it's funny and not funny, but I see all the time, especially election time, maybe we'll see it, you, you probably see it after somebody gets elected, but it's those bumper stickers, not my president, right? <laughs> not my president. And so it seems like, you know, I don't know if you drive a Prius in here, but a lot of Priuses around this town have one about Trump, right? He's not my president. And then every uh, plumber and carpenter and blue collar guy, he probably has one about Biden, right? Not my president. And... What's wild about that is that we really, the reason we do that is because we know we don't have to bow down to the president. We don't have to bow down to him, right? We feel freedom to be out from under their authority. We feel that freedom. And so you're conditioned as an American to be skeptical of authority. And I'm not saying that, you know, we need to have a king. Like our system, I think, is pretty good. But what I am saying is that this, it can be detrimental to your relationship with God if you think that you can be outside of his authority. And that's probably the case more than you care to admit. And also, here's the reason I know I really I don't like authority is, like I said, I, I don't like to hear the words no. And, uh, you know, my wife will tell you that I have a problem hearing the words no. I really do. And, and the other day, it was so funny, I was, I was, uh, I was just 
I was unpacked. We, were, we had this kind of like a birthday party, and I was putting a tent away. You know, those tents that you, like for tailgating or whatnot, and you fold them up. And you're supposed to put the tent on the ground and put the bag over the tent, right? But I didn't do it that way. I put the bag in somebody else's hand, and I picked the tent up over my shoulder, and I'm going to slide it in this bag. And as I'm working it in, I'm thinking, okay, and this person holding the bag says, no, stop. And I'm thinking, who are you to tell me to stop? Like, I've got the heavy tent. It's on my shoulder, right? I'm like, we're going to get it in this bag as it's going down. And, uh, and he wanted to get the bag all straight, perfect first. And, but there was just something about hearing no that just, and he was probably right, like we did pause for a second. Yeah, he's probably right. But, but I didn't, I was just, I wanted to whack him with the tent, right? Because I don't like to hear no. And if you're told no and you get angry too, if it offends you when you're told no, well, you must think that your way is the best way. And you don't trust the authority who's telling you no. You're operating like you should be an authority, right? You should be king in a sense. And I'm not saying we should listen to everybody who tells us no. I'm just trying to help us see how little we trust and value the authority of others in our lives and the authority over us and how it affects our relationship with God. See, if you're constantly conditioned to think you're king and your way is the best way, then you're not going to trust God when he gives you a sovereign no. Right? A God who, through circumstances, has determined certain things, how he, he shuts certain doors and opens certain doors. You're not going to trust his goodness no is an, a sovereign no is in essence God saying, no, your way is not going to happen. You're not going to get your way. There will be disappointment. It's coming your way. Prepare for it. You know, sovereign no's could be, I, I really want to get pregnant. We as a family, we're really trying to get pregnant. It could be a, a miscarriage. Maybe you lost your job because of a downturn in the economy. Right? Maybe a relationship ended unexpectedly. Maybe your children aren't healthy. Right? Maybe they're just not going to grow up and have the life that you thought they would have. And all these ways are where God has kind of given a sovereign no. And today, all people around us, we, we get sovereign no's and, and just the thought of God being in authority over us, being in control over us, can be repulsive to our pride because we just don't trust God's leading is good and right and is actually kind. We get angry, right? And mentally we even fracture all because we just can't handle the reality of a God allowing our plans to be changed. And the only way out of this grief and disappointment is to trust God the King. Trust Him. He's the one governing us for our good. God does everything for his glory and the good of his people. Romans 8.28 just reinforces the idea. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And I want to look at this passage and look how God responds to David in this passage. Look how he treats him. David, David falls slightly out of line with God and God's purposes. Because if it was in line with God perfectly, God would have told him, yes, because you, you're going to do the very thing I want you to do. And God reveals a little bit more about himself to David. 
And the first thing we see that God reveals is God is a king who travels with his people. He dwells with them. You know, why has God not built him a, why has, um, why has God not asked uh, anybody to build him a grand house? Because he is a good king. And instead of an ivory tower distance from his people, instead of his people living in shambles and the king living in royal splendor, we see that God humbles himself and dwells with his people, that Israel, they're not settled in the land. And because Israel's not settled, because they're moving about from place to place, God is not settled. He's moving about from place to place. And God knows the the best way for his people to know him is to be with them. And so he chooses a tent to dwell in because his people are unsettled. And the next thing we see is that God is a king who shepherds his people. You know, God responds to David, and he actually promises, it's a, it's a time of rest, right? David has rest from all his enemies, but God also promises a future day of rest. He says, this is, not the, this is not the greatest rest. There is a future day of rest, and this is where I'm leading my people to. I'm gonna, there's going to be a day where they will have no enemies. And so he appoints a king to that end to, to lead his people and to be good to his people. God gives sovereign no's, yet he is purposeful, and, and they're meant to bring his people safely to him and to this promised rest. Like I said, God designs all things for his glory and the good of his people. We see that God is all about shepherding his people, bringing them to a rest, a place of rest, to a good pasture, in a sense. The third thing we see is that God is a king who gives grace upon grace. David, at this point, he is a person who we would say has received great grace in the eyes of the Lord. Like he, he was a shepherd boy, and somehow he became a king, right? It's, and then not only a king, but whenever he went out to battle, he defeated anybody he came into contact with, right? He had victory. He, he couldn't be stopped. And what grace up to that point where God has been with David, And making him a king. And it says that he has a name among all the great ones of the earth. David. What grace has been given to him. But it's it's not enough. See, God is a God who wants to, he, he decides to lavish more grace on David. More. More. And so he makes David a promise. He says, moreover, the Lord declares that you are to you that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up from your offspring after you who shall conf- come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So think about David as king. And, and wouldn't you want your kingdom to last a long time? Wouldn't you want it to not fall out like Saul's did? And here's God saying, David, your kingdom will never end. What a grace. God has promised to bestow on David. And that can mean one of two things. One is that David has a son who has a son who has a son who has a son, and the kingdom just goes on forever and ever and ever and ever. Or it could mean that there's one son eventually that never dies, and he lives forever. It probably means one of those two things. And Israel is probably thinking of the former, of a dynasty of one after the other. 
And the, the promise is not just that Dave, there is going to be a, a, a kingdom that's going to last forever, but it does mention that, hey, that, that David's um, heirs, they're going to be disciplined, right? They're going to go astray, but God is going to bring them back. He's going to discipline them. So it says that hey, there's going to be times where it's rocky and it's hard for God's people, but this kingdom will last forever. And it goes into why the promise. 2 Samuel 7.21 says, Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about this greatness to make your servant know it. Some translations say, for the sake of your word. And what David is saying here is that this promise is given for a future day. It's given for a future day when God's people can, can when this event occurs, God's people can look back at 2 Samuel 7 and say, God promised this. And he was faithful to his promise. And so, so much the Old Testament is really looking at this promise and hunting for this promise. You have the book of Chronicles. It's just king after king after king after king after king. And in the temple, they would have tracked David's line. They would have tracked this promise. They would have known who are all the ancestors of David. Because they're trying to track this progress, uh, promise and see where the story goes. And I know that there had to be a time when Israel went to exile, that Israel was thinking, hey, what about the promise? What about the promise? Where, where's, where's the king on David's throne? What about this promise? And then Matthew starts his gospel in an extraordinary way. He starts it with a genealogy. And Matthew, with his genealogy, what he's saying He's giving the genealogy of Jesus, and he's saying that this man, Jesus, he is a direct descendant from David, the king, and that he is himself this promised king who's going to sit on the throne of David, who will rule forever on that throne. We can't get much more of a straight line from the Old Testament promises to Jesus. And Matthew is telling us that God has been faithful. He is a good king. And that Jesus is king. And, and the gospel is essentially that Jesus is a good king who comes to bring his people out of darkness so that he would be king over them in a kingdom of light. And the gospel is perfect for people who are really skeptical of authority. Right? Can God be trusted? And Jesus doesn't tell you. He doesn't just tell you he can be trusted, but he shows you that he can be trusted. He shows you that he is good in the gospel. If we look at the life of Jesus, isn't he the same God of 2 Samuel 7, a king who travels with his people. We say that Jesus' name is Emmanuel, God with us. And even Isaiah 53 says that Jesus, to some degree, somewhat, probably looked like a shabby tent. He's a king who shepherds his people. Jesus goes about preaching and teaching, proclaiming the kingdom of God and calling people out of darkness, calling away from the sin that ensnares them into the kingdom of light for their good. And he's also a king who gives grace upon grace. Jesus not only taught about his, the kingdom of heaven, but he lived a perfect life as a perfect subject in the kingdom of heaven. He obeyed the law perfectly and was righteous. And he graciously offered himself as a substitute for all those who have rebelled against God the king. Taking your place, atoning for your sins on the cross. And then he raises from the dead showing that he is the king on David's throne who will never die. 
his kingdom will last forever. And yet we know that he also continues to be with God's people. Paul tells us that God sends his Holy Spirit to us believers and that we're like jars of clay. Know a lot of value in the, in the clay jar. But the Holy Spirit that indwells us, we're kind of now like the shabby tents to a degree where God continues to dwell with us and shepherd us to the promised land. And can't we all look back as believers? If you're a Christian in this room, can't you look back like David does and say, who am I, God, that you have brought me this far? You know, haven't you, hasn't God delivered you from some of the sin that ensnared you when you were an unbeliever? Like to a degree, I know that we're all still ensnared in sin to, to various ways, but hasn't there been many ways of deliverance from sin? And hasn't God brought you into a community with people who love you and care about your soul? What a grace that is to be part of a family. But yet there'll be more grace. God promises more grace. He's a God who bestows grace upon grace that we can look back at God's goodness to us in the past. And that can help us look forward to God's goodness to us in the future as he promises more. He promises more sanctification that we will grow and be like him more. He promises a future rest where our sin will be no more. He promises one day we will see God face to face as we dwell together. And so the gospel just shows that Jesus is a good king who can be trusted. And we have to trust our good king as he shepherds us, shepherds us through the disappointments of life, through the sovereign no's that we receive. If you're not a Christian today, I would call you to evaluate God and his promises in his word. And see that he is the promise maker and he is the promise keeper. And I would encourage you to come to him, to believe in him. And to believe that he is a good king. He is a shepherding king. Who look out, who, he will look out for his subjects. He will look out for his people. And come and give him dominion over your life. Come and die to yourself and serve the king of kings. And that one way or another, your knee will bow before the king. And also, if you're a believer today, I, I think that there's always room to repent for just not seeing Jesus as king rightly. In many ways, we do see that we can just do our own thing, that we're not under Jesus', Jesus authority, the king, but also for not trusting that Jesus is a good king, that he's kind and gentle and lowly at heart, out for your good and for his glory. And so we've got some application before we uh, wrap up here. And, and the application is this. That because Jesus is Lord, because he sits on the throne of David, we need to be a people who make lordship decisions. And lordship decisions are where our faith really becomes real and genuine. And your, and your faith becomes an adventure with God. It's where you're called to obey God. You're called to choose to obey God regardless of the cost. And to discipline yourself to obey God's command regardless of what you feel. And so I just think of an example of uh, the Great Commission passage, right? Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. You know, even in that, it has all the overtones of 2 Samuel 7. Jesus is the king with all authority. Jesus promises to be with us. 
Jesus is the good shepherd sending you out as an ambassador to call the lost sheep and bring them home for your good and their good. And also there's grace upon grace promise there that, that surely we're going to mess up between now and the end of the age. But Jesus promises he will never leave us. That there is grace upon grace promised in this great commission passage. And so a lordship decision would be something like you hear the commands of God and I know that, hey, I need to go make disciples of all nations. I need to go advance the kingdom of God and I'm going to choose to do it. Right? I'm going I'm to believe and trust that God's way, the king, is for my good. And I might think, hey, if I start go telling people about Jesus, I'm probably going to, I might lose some friends. I'm worried about what people will think of me. I'm, I'm a little bit concerned about I might lose my, the, my, na- my, my neighbors might not like me. Right? And I think there's always wisdom, but lordship decisions are when your faith says, I'm going to do it. It's for my good. And I'm scared. It's a little bit crazy. It's going to be a little bit crazy to, to share my testimony with a coworker, right? Have him over to dinner and, and ask about his spiritual beliefs. It's going to be a little bit like, but here we go, right? And that's what lordship decisions are, is that making decisions around God's commands and obedience to God's commands because he is king. And those commands are actually God's way of shepherding us for our good. Shepherding us toward godliness, toward the kingdom of light. And they put us on a trajectory in the Christian life. And there's honestly no other way but to obey and to seek to obey God's commands. I'm not saying you're saved by your obedience. You're not. You're so free in Christ. But it is a God calls us, sets us free from the kingdom of darkness to be his servants. And Jesus himself says, why do you call me Lord if you don't do what I say? And so I would encourage you to begin to make lordship decisions based around God being king, around his word, and obeying him. And let me read this passage, and then we'll, trans- we'll transition to a time of communion. Then I saw heaven opened up. This is from Revelation 19, 11, 16. I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dripped in blood. And by a name... And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh was written the name, King of kings and Lord of lords.